your one-stop shop for the stories, secrets, and shenanigans of a popcorn-fueled theme park journalist. I'm Carly Wiesel, and I just finished watching the second and final night of Women's Gymnastics Olympic Trials, and I am ready. I am ready. I am the type of person who gets very, very into women's gymnastics once every four years, now five years because of COVID and the Olympics and yada, 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 but... Oh my gosh, what a thrill. I ended up screaming so many times when someone would trip. I think there's called a wolf turn. I know too too much for someone who can barely touch their toes without groaning. I had a blast watching it. I got a lot of feelings. I can't wait. The Olympics are so soon. I can't wait to cheer everyone on. I got Olympic fever and I can't wait to see more women's gymnastics. A lot happened. I don't want to dwell on the fact that Simone Biles fell off the beam, but so much happened. It was very eventful. Ay, ay, ay. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait for more Olympic stuff to happen. Now, until the Olympics, I do plan on fully succumbing to the bliss that is Loki. Yes, just like the time when WandaVision completely overtook my personality earlier this year. Uh, I'm back and I have no excuse now because I cannot stop watching it. Uh, Women's Gymnastics Olympic Trials was a fun break from Loki Mania, which is happening over in all of my devices. I'm watching YouTube videos. I'm listening to hours of podcasts, hours and hours of people talking about Loki. New rock stars, the Ringerverse, my friend Miranda told me I had to listen to and she was absolutely right. I cannot stop ingesting Loki-adjacent content. It's just all day, all night, Loki, Loki, Loki. I love it so much. I cannot believe we are happy way. And by the time this comes out, we will be more than halfway through the season. I just, oh my God. But then Black Widow's around the corner. We still have so much more to look forward to. But like the sun is shining. I can see friends again. I shouldn't be this invested in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And, and yet, and yet it, I'm just, I'm all in. I'm all in. I'm all in. Now today we are talking about something a little bit different. We are talking about the unknown ties between a classic Los Angeles marionette theater and Walt Disney himself. You may not know about or much about Bob Baker Marionette Theater right now, but by the end of this episode, you'll know all about its ties to Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Walt Disney, Disneyland, Disney World, and even Epcot, with a very special figment-based mystery to solve. A figment-based mini-mystery! But also, like, not that many. It's kind of a really big deal, and I hope that we can all work together to solve it. I'm going to post photos of the thing we're talking about on social media so we can get to the bottom of this because I think we can think if we band together think of us Disney heads can band together we can figure this one out and solve solve a little Bob Baker marionette theater Disney related mystery I don't want to spoil too much I'll just get right into the episode and get ready for a, a lot of stuff you've never heard before that provides a lot of context to the history of all things Disneyland etc etc all right let's just get into it stick around it is marionette fun time coming up next Hello, 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 and welcome to the Bob Baker Marionette Theatre. Are you guys ready for a show? Most shows at the historic Bob Baker Marionette Theater in Los Angeles, California, start just like this. An undeniably cheerful riff of music from decades past, a glimpse into the boundless fun that lies ahead, and an exceedingly warm welcome from Alex Evans, executive director and head puppeteer. Dressed in the standard uniform, bright red from head to toe, Alex blends in against the curtain backdrop, which hides a selection of the thousands of special figures they have, ready to come to life in their staged shows. The theater, founded in 1963, is a Los Angeles historic cultural monument, a nonprofit, and has been through its fair share of challenges in recent years. After Bob passed in 2014, the team was tasked with keeping his vision alive at a time when, well, puppetry arts aren't as in vogue as they once were. Then came The Move, a massive undertaking to transpose the magic and history of 55 years spent in their original location to a brand new one in Highland Park, a suburb of Los Angeles. And then, once they'd finally begun to settle in, COVID-19 struck, leaving the local institution to find new ways to reach their audiences safely and from a distance. 
I'll add now that Bob Baker Marionette Theater is one of my favorite places in the world. I am biased here, people. I love it more than anything. I've long been a patron of the theater, not just for its whimsy and delight, but for providing a true window into the past. The shows here still honor Baker's original work, retro soundtracks filled with songs from the 50s and 60s, and on Halloween, Black Cat, a three-foot-tall-ish cat with a personality that precedes itself, is known to get rowdy, shaking her tail in patrons' lap in coordination with Eartha Kitt's saucy rendition of I Want to Be Evil. It is a highlight of the season, let me tell ya. As you can imagine, there's a lot of crossover here with Disney fans, but as I've learned more and more over the years, it's not just a flair for the unique driving that. The story of Bob Baker Marionette Theater goes far, far back, and has way more ties to Walt Disney in the early days of his first theme park than you might expect. Walt's interest in marionettes isn't as well documented as some of his other fascinations and hobbies, but it was there, and Bob Baker himself, as a young boy, was just as intrigued by what Mr. Disney had been creating, writing letters to Walt Disney Studios, Oswald the Rabbit, and more as a child, garnering actual responses on some of the most legendary letterhead to ever exist. Having seen marionette displays at the glitzy Los Angeles department stores of the era, by the age of 13, Bob knew he wanted to be a puppeteer and began working as one. His first job? Participating in a special promotional show for a new film by the name of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Bob later worked on actual projects for Disneyland around its opening, providing jesters to be used as window displays at the Fantasy of Disneyland shop around 1956. When it reopened as Tinkerbell Toy Shop one year later, his colleague and friend, Bob Mills, would even go on to set up a marionette theater right there inside the shop at Disneyland, at Walt Disney's behest, once he saw Mills perform at Children's Fairyland in Oakland, California. Bob Baker himself went on to produce even more work for Disney and within Disney parks. He worked on animated window displays on Main Street USA, honoring films like Sleeping Beauty, Aristocats, Peter Pan, 101 Dalmatians, and Bedknobs and Broomsticks when they were being re-released. Those windows would even go on to later be replicated at Walt Disney World. Bob himself also worked directly on Disney films, being called on for, as I'm told, to give substitutionary locomotion to inanimate objects for bedknobs and broomsticks and escape to Witch Mountain. In other words, he was there to make practical movie magic. Items from those films he participated in, like much of this stuff, remain at the theater. But perhaps his longest-lasting legacy are the marionettes Bob created and sold through Disney. From 1982 to 1989, as well as 92 to 93, Bob was tasked with designing and producing a full Disneyana collectible marionette collection that was sold by Disney. He even created special commemorative ones, like a limited run of 200 life-size 54-inch Pinocchio marionettes, used as a sales incentive for video stores who sold the most Disney videos. Even more special, though, is that the first six of them were handmade recreations of the original 1930s Hesswood puppets, the exact kind, I'm told, Bob himself purchased as a kid. It's stuff like that that makes me shocked by how much history there is at Bob Baker Marionette Theater that isn't really public knowledge. And thankfully, Alex, executive director and head puppeteer who you heard from earlier, and Winona Bechtel, director of development, were able to provide me with all of this information and even willing to sit down to talk further about Bob's Disney legacy. Bob saved everything from his life, his career, and as you'll soon hear, that's resulted in a plethora of stuff, just a bounty of Disney delights. Sometimes it's spare parts from a certain marionette that went into production. Other times it's unheard music by, well, I won't spoil that surprise just yet. As you'll hear, Bob's works have made their way into actual Disney attractions, while others we're not even sure about to this day. Your help will be needed to solve a few mini-mysteries as well. So come with me as we step inside one of my happiest places on Earth to keep the legend alive and continue to discover more and more about the connections between Bob Baker, his marionettes, and Walt Disney himself. Thank you so much for coming on. I, I feel sure. I'm, I'm so happy to have these two worlds come together because I'm 
such a massive fan of what you both do. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I guess to start off, I'd love to talk more first about Walt Disney's interest in puppets and marionettes, because there's so much discussion of his love for trains and his love for miniatures. And I didn't really know about this until you told me. It's weird (laughs) to me that it's not a bigger deal. So I'd love to know more if you know of anything on that realm of how much he really loved this art form. I think, I think maybe a great place to start is like in the thirties, like the golden age of marionettes, where I think paying the picture of during that period, marionettes was such a huge thing. Like, uh, especially in Los Angeles, like it would be, you know, as big as the movies seeing a vaudeville show with marionettes being a big part of it. It was, I think, 1937, and Bob Baker's 13 years old, working with Wayne Barlow, Bob Bromley at J.W. Robinson's department store. And they were producing Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So I know that the Disney connection to marionette puppetry goes back at least that far because it was a fairly popular thing that the way they would do promo was having these puppet shows in windows of department stores where everybody would come bring their entire families, bring their kids. And it was one of Bob's earliest exposures to live puppetry in general, because he purchased his first marionettes at a large department store. So I guess it was just was the place to be if you were a puppeteer or a Disney fan or a young child like Bob, who at six years old already knew that he wanted to be a professional puppeteer for the rest of his life. The fact that he started in a show based on Snow White, which there is so much lore about that movie, especially the premiere. Like there is a full restaurant at Disney California Adventure themed to the theater that the premiere was at. And I had never heard that that's how he got his start, that there was this type of promo at that time. Do you happen to know what he was doing within the Snow White show by any chance? So um, I want to say he did Snow White, the character. Um, and there's a funny story Bob would tell about this is his first big performance and they're operating from a bridge, which means kind of you're suspended on this kind of bridge and lean over and do the puppet. And so Bob's doing Snow White and he drops the control bar and it makes Snow White kind of flip upside down and I kind of legs dangle in the air. And at that juncture, the soundtrack says like, save me, Prince, save me with her legs dangling like upside down. Um, and Bob was mortified. But Bob said that at the end of the show, the puppeteers turned to him and said like, now you're a professional puppeteer. Like, drop your first puppet. Um, <laughs> Almost like a hazing rush. Yeah, or something. yeah. <laughs> um, so, I, so from that story, Snow White. But beyond beyond that, I, I don't know much. I'm sure I would be fascinated to record the show recordings. They must exist somewhere. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. But we're at the puppet theater, we're constantly finding things of, because where the puppet show is everything from the puppet to the sketches to the show recordings. So there's all these layers within a show that always we uncover them like pretty randomly. It feels like we come across a box or somebody writes us an email and it's like, oh, wow, this part of history, the, the dots connect. Yeah. So well, and it tends to be that kind of stuff was just so ephemeral. And obviously, like recording technology was not nearly as ubiquitous as it is today, but Bob really saved everything. Like we even have at the theater, his first program for the puppet theater he made as a child in his backyard, like in his parents' garage, Bob's Petite Theater. Like we still have that program that like an eight-year-old child made. It's up on the wall here. I mean, he really, I think had a lot of foresight in knowing that the stuff he was doing was going to be you know, really significant. And he sure believed it. And it ended up being, you know, some of the most important like pop culture, Disney, just entertainment moments ever, (laughs) which is, which is a wild thing to just know that you should hang on to that, you know? Yeah. One of the coolest things that I've seen you share are the letters that he wrote to the studio and the responses he got back. Oh yeah. How did you come across those? Yeah. So, so to get, to give some context to that. So when Bob was just eight years old, he wrote Disney back when they were at the Hyperion studios, just saying, hi, I'm a big fan. I want to come look around. And I think it was Walt's secretary who wrote back explaining that, oh, all these cartoon characters are running loose. We can't possibly let you in. Like, and how would it look to all the other little boys and girls that want to come here if we let you in? So it was a sweet response on this, like, beautiful illustrated letterhead 
and obviously meant a lot to Bob as a kid. And he ended up keeping that. And this, this is maybe jumping ahead a bit, but when he was producing collectible marionettes for Disney, he would often include a photocopy of that letter that he sent as a child to Hyperion Studios and writing directly to Walt Disney. But I mean, some of his first marionettes were the Hesswood Mickey and Minnie marionettes. So it was obviously a big influence on him when he was just a child. So I can only imagine that must have felt like a dream yeah. to be asked to recreate the Hesswood marionettes, which he was later asked to do. It's funny that so Bob would sell all these Disney character marionettes and he would package them. It's like a scrapbook. So it had like programs from these shows in these apartment stores, like the letters from Disney. It felt like Bob was just like packing in all his like fun memories kind of inside. The yeah, kit. he really liked writing letters because we also came across a letter he wrote to Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And he got a response from um, Jimmy Dietrich, who was a composer for the show. But it's it's just this charming postcard with Oswald on the front and you know everybody was nice enough to write back to the eight-year-old super fan but yeah just the fact that he saved that correspondence and you know we have those letters we have a letter from Jim Henson that he was sent I mean there's just all these amazing you know honestly like beautiful letterheads yeah. from all these different studios and really inspiring things to read it's uh yeah it's a good message to the youngsters that they should write their idols yeah one day they'll grow up and do these things yeah <laughs> Uh, so in the timeline of Bob Baker's relationship with Disney, what is the very first thing he created that appeared in a theme park? So one of the very early ones would be uh, these two jesters that he created that were in the fantasy of Disneyland shop, which would have been like 1956. And those are the jesters for any Bob Baker fans. You see them when you walk in the theater these days, they're yellow and purple and they have their hands in what looks like a funny position if you don't know what they're for um they're almost like lobster like hands <laughs> and they're designed that way because when they were in these windows they would hold purses they would hold necklaces they were used to just sell products um at fantasy of disneyland shop so that was yeah that would have been year one that the park was open that he did that and you know that that very I'll wait till the motorcycle passes. Um, that very same shop, the Fantasy of Disneyland store, ended up having, you know, kind of e even more of like puppet influence later on. But I'd say that that's where he probably started doing stuff was more of the retail end of things in the park. You asked earlier, like, what was Walt's like interest in marionettes and in puppets? And this was like just another early thing where he talked about wanting a puppet theater on the Disneyland grounds. So Bob Mills, who used to perform at Children's Fairyland up in Oakland, which slightly predates Disneyland later on, comes down to Disneyland and does a show at the shop. And just because everything is like full circle and connects, like Alex said, you know, years later, Bob Baker wound up storing and eventually, you know, permanently owning Bob Mills puppets. So when you come to the theater these days, not only can you see the jesters from the windows you can also see these bob mills marionettes which we use like in our nutcracker show for one but yeah yeah it's it's just all this this you know these community connections that have sort of coalesced here over time it seems so strange and niche these days but i, I think just because we're one of the longest surviving marionette theaters of this size we we did wind up with so much ephemera so many marionettes from people you know, over the last 70 years, because unfortunately, a lot of those smaller studios, even some of the bigger ones just didn't didn't survive the, you know, a century, which is such an unusual thing for any business. So part of our mission here is to just keep those stories going, because though Bob Baker is at the heart of what we do, there's all these people and designers and folks like Bob Mills, who yeah. you just just orbit it so closely. And now we're the stewards of it. I feel like the more I learn about this section of the Bob Baker Marionette Theater's history, the more stressed I get that these marionettes <laughs> are just like, they're being used all the time. Like, yeah. do, you, do you at all, like, I know you have the the capability to repair anything that needs to be repaired, but are you ever struck by like how historically important some of these <laughs> objects are? 
<laughs> yeah, all the time. We were constantly talking about that, about yeah. like, should, like when the costumes tear, like, oh, should we fix this? Should we like stop using this? Like, um, yeah. it's, but, but I mean, it, that comes as the nature of performance, what they're built for. That kind of every puppet we have, even the ones that we've recently built, you know, they just need um, a constant maintenance. Um, and they've never stopped being performed. It's not as if we got these things, you know, out of a cabinet to kind of perform. It's essentially from the day they were built, they just kept being used. And it would feel more strange to me to kind of just stop using them. <laughs> yeah, the the things though that do really stress me out that I feel like we we have kind of retired. So so a lot of the the window display stuff from Disneyland, which happened like more in the seventies. Those, I think, they're so delicate. They're kind of made out of vacuum form. A lot of times they're flocked or the details are literally drawn on with a felt tip pen. They're just not designed the same way puppets are to survive for 70 years. So a lot of a lot of the window display stuff, I feel, we're, we try to be very precious about just because the material is not replaceable and not durable. So the things that are more commercial where you might expect to use it for a season or for a single shoot those we do try to preserve but you know the foam rots or stuff falls apart like some of it just over time no matter what we do will deteriorate which is why we've gotten so much better at photographing everything too because you know we want to capture those changes i mean there's also so much stuff the best way to showcase it all is to use it. Like yeah. we, we don't have enough room to kind of put it on display. Um, so we'd be able to really get it yeah. out. Yeah. We'd love to bring it back to Disneyland. Let's do the windows there again because yeah, yeah. we can't store them here. Yeah. <laughs> it's so wild to think about that some of the stuff that people who have been to the theater and have seen it has, that stuff has spent more time at Disneyland than even yes. a mega fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, Maybe maybe you're going to get into this soon, but we have an entire room of the theater here, just like a pretty large storage space that's just boxes of extra parts from commercial puppets Bob would do for Disney. So, you know, you have everything from Mickey hands to outfits for the seven dwarves like it's just a, yeah. a literal mountain of some of the boxes are quite grotesque it's just like a box full of like pig heads yeah <laughs> <laughs> like here's your three little pigs there's 500 of their heads just disembodied <laughs> so it's you know who knows why we have so many of some and so few of others but well, yeah. part of, well part of the reason i mean because we mass produce them so much and you know we're there was one people churning out as many heads as they could the other people um i, I gotta say it's probably because it wasn't very good accounting of like <laughs> like how many do we need so they just like yeah. kept producing and then like stop <laughs> <laughs> yeah and we're, we're actively these days trying to kind of as much as possible collect back uh at least one of each type of puppet that we made because there's so many different commercial marionettes. And so it was like 82 to 89 is when he did these collectibles, but also in 92 and 93, he was doing some of them as well. And it's, it's, it's everything from like Mickey, Minnie, Pluto, Donald. And then you had some, like some throwback ones. So Horace and Bucky and June bug um, characters from snow white. I mean, it really, ran the gamut and something like i think it's 37 in total that he made 37 different characters and they were sold by the thousands i mean there were yeah. just so many of them and all exquisite like it's it's arguably like one of the the peaks of our commercial output because just the quality of the paint the quality of the costumes um and they're even pretty functional i mean you can make them look pretty good you know as far as a consumer marionette goes yeah and perfectionist doesn't begin to describe bob baker so i'm certain when he got the phone call from like disney like make this like childhood dream yeah i'm sure he sunk his whole life into it yeah so so yeah like i said we started in the early 80s and pretty much took it up to the nightmare before christmas so that's i think the last line that we did but we have you know, some really impressive, like Jack Skellington marionettes, and we did Sally and Zero. It's they're just absolutely beautiful because you can imagine like Jack's skeleton fingers. I mean, he had to reproduce that in a way where it wasn't just gonna like shatter <laughs> when you shipped yeah. it to somebody. And they still just look 
so delicate. It's they're really amazing. I mean, I gotta ask, what do you plan on doing with these boxes of heads and hands? Like you're swimming in parts, <laughs> just hoarding my preciouses. <laughs> we, I have a feeling that something's gonna happen where we get a phone call. It's like, ah, oh, they they want to make them again, or yeah. whatever it is. Or I, I don't know, I don't know, but I. Don't want to get rid of them. So. Yeah. Well, and every so often there, there are a couple that were just never like they were prototyped, but never produced. So those are even more of a big question mark because it's like the big bad wolf that we have where, I mean, it's a finished puppet. It's got like the plaque and the brochure and everything, but supposedly it was deemed too scary. And, you know, it's got the big sharp teeth. I kind of get it. Yeah. But that's one that we just put together just to put it together there's a big bad wolf there's a captain hook and some of those it's just you know they yeah. might n never see the light of day but i think it's a really interesting kind of unproduced moment of memorabilia where we have the finished products sitting here and yeah. nobody ever had a chance to buy them so those are I mean, really along those lines when you were moving the theater in 2019 and packing up for lord knows how long before then uh did you come across anything unexpected so much stuff oh the showman brothers tape is incredible oh we talked about that yeah, yeah yeah so we have a musical library where we kind of put together all the puppet shows and it's wall to wall of records and, and notes and real to reels and cassette tapes basically every media format from 1930 to today <laughs> like yeah. however obscure <laughs> and so, so we uncovered this like i think it was like a set tape and a letter it was the letter first because we we oh, found a letter that said it was like dear bob attached or you find within a cassette of like demo samplings of music and it was signed like richard sherman and it had sheet music too and it had sheet music attached attached to it so we were like okay a letter from Richard Sherman saying that he mailed Bob a cassette, like surely this is somewhere. And it's, well, it's actually before we found the cassette, we were like, we got, we found the sheet music and we ran down to our like rusty old organ. Yeah. that had Fred, who's a puppeteer slash organist, like, Oh, play this song. What does this song sound like? Yeah. And, uh, well, and then it, and then it occurred to us, like Bob never threw anything away. Like this must still be in the building. And shockingly, so like Alex had been here 10 years at that point. Yeah. We had no idea this thing existed. I run upstairs just knowing what I'm looking for. I found it in 15 minutes. I yeah. mean, it was just sitting amongst the cassettes there. And it just said like to Bob from Richard. And you could hear like Richard Truman banging away on the piano, just kind of very roughly singing what are pretty clearly original compositions. Like, I mean, yeah. we searched them out and one of them's like about like a piano papa yeah <laughs> it's like piano papa don't you stop uh. it's just kind of a goofy goofy song that i it's still kind of a mystery and you know we ought to get in touch with richard and figure out what's what's going on with that stuff but just yeah. this silly demo that nothing really seemed to ever come of it to my knowledge but yeah there it is up in our library and we just stumbled upon it one day and still still got to figure out a way to properly honor that because it is just amazing that we have it well it's kind of like bob baker in a nutshell it's like endless in the amount of like surprises and cool things like that like yeah. the fact that we haven't done anything with that is only because there's a <laughs> hundred other things that keep coming up but like oh we gotta do something with this yeah, <laughs> yeah. but but the the disney the the disney artifacts and memorabilia in particular it's i mean we have six decades of collaboration with both Walt Disney, the person and Disney, the company. And it's, it's a lot to make sense of like, there's the window displays, there's commercial stuff. It's so wide reaching that we lean so heavily on people like you or our pal, Kevin Kidney, <laughs> just like, yeah. we'll just send pictures to people saying, can you make sense of this? And, and luckily Alex and I were, we're, we're very grateful to be able to call Chris Nichols a dear friend. And yeah. if anyone hasn't read his Disneyland book for Tashin, it's amazing. But we were always just asking him like, do you have any idea what this is? <laughs> Cause as much as we try, some of it's just, you know, like there's a good chunk of things that were just unproduced. So there's no way you could research what it was unless you could like recognize the chicken scratch writing on the bottom of the piece of paper. <laughs> so it's, it's a, if you like mysteries, please volunteer at the theater because we have a lot of mysteries to solve. We have like 
these different versions of figment. One is like a really tiny full body figment. What material is that? Would you say? Just foam, yeah. No, but the hard one that was in the oh, office. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. It's just like a little maybe. like resin figure of figment. And then we have a very large figment that's like in three parts, kind of cut up in three parts, made of foam. And the most I could find of it, or a little hint to what one of them or both of them might be for, is the, uh, so Imagination Pavilion at Epcot Center, I guess it was like a filmed intro for the journey into your imagination ride. Like perhaps at some point, Bob built like small versions that they would have shot for that intro or had some kind of moving element. I haven't seen any video to like know if that's what we have or not, but um, it would have been around like 83. So there are still some people who we, we speak to and are still involved at the theater who were like, yeah, I think it was maybe for journey into, into your imagination, but you know, we just have the foam here. Like there's no paperwork we found. It's just sort of, well, I guess we must've done something with figment at one point because he exists and small and large here. <laughs> well, the lesson Figment teaches us for us use our imagination. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very true. And I like I've had like a Figment magnet on my fridge since I was a kid. So it's one of those things where I'm just like, God, what a mystery. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh my God. Well if anybody can solve it in yeah. terms of the contingency of Disney fans. <laughs> we've we've chased down weirder stuff. Oh, that's so. why I love doing these kinds of talks because it's just i always try to think like okay what questions do we need answers because if there's any group of people that can research (laughs) it's disney folk you've said that bob's marionettes are in the final scene of pinocchio's daring journey attraction at disneyland Uh, can you tell me more about that and are there any other places within disney parks where bob's creations can currently be found if you're in disneyland paris you can see a beautiful maleficent uh, figure in i think it's the emporium um but so maleficent exists still at disneyland paris um so disneyland hotel disneyland hotel yeah, i'm sorry it's, yeah, in, yeah. it's in the lobby at the disneyland hotel you can see the the witch and evil queen yeah and at the end so, and then so that that and then at the end of the pinocchio ride you'll see coco who's one of bob's signature kind of puppets um there in the workshop you get to see and i think a workshop. dutch boy might be in there too so it's another one of bob's commercial puppets yeah and even actually a dutch boy and ballerina yeah yeah, but so all the, these commercial puppets that Bobby's make, that it kind of just fills the scene of Geppetto's workshop, um, which fittingly so from puppets from Bob's workshop. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. And do you happen to know anything more about Bob's involvement with the earlier Sleeping Beauty Castle walkthrough experience? So this is a mystery for us. <laughs> this is so. I can tell you my theory. Yeah, let's hear. <laughs> so they did the original kind of. Um, uh, what's it called? Cell kind of like walkthrough kind of experience, and then redid that. I think in the eighties. Is that right? Um, but they redid the in the eighties, kind of inspired by some of the display windows they did, um, you know, throughout Main Street. And there are pictures and drawings of, of Bob's kind of large form Sleeping Beauty's kind of figures. I've never seen the actual physical um, what they look like because in I think. Uh, early 2000s they changed it back to the original cells um so but we do have like swaths like fabric swaths of kind of what figures and things like that but we're not sure if it was just cinderella ones for window displays or from the yeah i would say signs point to like it being very likely that we worked on that and and i think what was it i think it might be one of the figures that was up at the what was the exhibit that everybody was going to at the, at the Bowers Museum. There's like a, I think it was one of the figures from that at the Bowers Museum. And just looking at it, I'm like, kind. It kind of looked like something we could have done. A slightly different style, but yeah. yeah, it's 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 surprisingly tough to find any credit for those windows of like who exactly made it. So yeah. that 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 neither confirms nor denies it. But I'm very curious if anyone has info on that. Yeah. I'll do my best. Uh, I watched some videos of it and I was like, either 
he did a little of this or he did the whole thing? Yeah, it, it, it really stylistically like looks up our alley and the timing is right. I, I think I think when that was being done, he was also doing a lot of like a lot of times Disney World would ask him to redo windows there. You know, that that had been done at Disneyland, but they would be a little bit bigger. So he he would, you know, redo windows, expand size, contract like that's definitely in the wheelhouse of work we did for the parks. So yeah, I would love to have that answered because it's, it's just like such a fascinating story of like that changing so much, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll do our best. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm, I'm so happy to learn so much more about this place that I love. Thank you. Thanks Carly. uttered the words genie plus knows firsthand that vacations require time money planning energy and if you put all that effort into enjoying your trip already why not extend the highlights of that getaway into your everyday with framebridge put that vintage epcot ticket up in your office and give it a little personality surprise your kid with their favorite character's autograph immortalized on the wall of their room Framebridge makes it so easy and affordable to custom frame any photo, park map, or even cocktail napkin from a theme park hotel bar in just minutes. You can mock up exactly what it'll look like on their website before you even spend a dime. Things ship fast and they ship for free, and their colorful custom framing means they'll not only help you plan your gallery wall, but make sure your place looks cooler than the interiors of that mid-century modern home within Spaceship Earth. I love the mementos I framed with Framebridge so much that I rearranged my entire office so I can enjoy them daily. This is not a bit. This is this is true life. They're the backdrop to my podcast Zoom interviews, my Instagram stories, and even the goofy photos we take of Pearl tip-tapping away at my keyboard like she's a miniature employee. Too often, our favorite memories of a vacation are tucked inside our phone or shoved within a drawer, and it thrills me to no end that because of Framebridge, I can finally be surrounded by my memories. Framebridge makes custom framing easy, affordable, and enjoyable. And on top of that, their happiness guarantee ensures that no matter what, you'll wind up with something you love. To get started, head to framebridge.com because your precious travel memories shouldn't have to stay in the past. That's framebridge.com. American Giant makes the durable, comfortable spring closet staples you need for work, the gym, and even happy hour. Made in America. Designed to last a lifetime. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20. Hi, Carly. This is Christina. I'm just calling to make absolutely sure that you address the protein vending machine at Epcot on Very Amusing, um, or what you might at this point be referring to Eggate based on how things turned out. Um, I love following along with your protein-powered fun. Um, so I love this story, and I just want to hear more about it. Um, thanks for everything. Bye. Oh my gosh, I feel seen and heard. I also did not know that this had been elevated to a gate, an egg gate, but you're you're right. We should make it part of very amusing canon because this is a conversation that needs to live, I guess, on multimedia platforms. So long story short, I went to Disney World for one day in June. I went with my friend and colleague, Brooke Geiger-McDonald, who I I shout out all the time here. She's the best. We went from Magic Kingdom to Epcot. And when we hopped off the bus, I noticed there was a area with vending machines. And one of the vending machines was filled with hearty, reliable, protein-packed snacks. One in particular that called my name <laughs> was a handful of bagged, hard-boiled eggs. Not in a Ziploc, like a, you know, a fully sealed container of hard-boiled eggs. You know the ones you see at like the grocery store or gas stations that are just kind of like in, like impervious to the world around them. They're just like floating there in the goo like just like, like a little goo egg. Anyway, those were in a vending machine and I thought how incredible that you can get a handful of protein, just like a burst of power in the middle of your park day at this vending machine location. And Brooke was 
aghast. She was absolutely horrified. And I took a video of this to post it online. I posted it as a reel on my Instagram page. I will put it in the show notes so you all can very honestly tell me I was wrong, which is fine. I get it because a lot of people already have. (laughs) And I completely understand where they're coming from. So Brooke's point of view, her perspective was that why would you eat something like this, you know, a handful of refrigerated questionable eggs, when mere steps from here, you have the bounty of Epcot's World Showcase. You can eat your way around the world. And instead, you're going to eat these two orbs from inside this vending machine, which I understand. I understand. I get it. But the way I see it is that I cannot indulge in Epcot fineries the way I would like to if I do not have a layer of protein under me to keep me going. If I go too far and I just end up eating two bags of caramel corn, I'm going to crash real hard. But if I have the sustenance and the wholeness of an entire egg popped into my mouth as I'm waltzing through Epcot, I can do anything and I am therefore invincible vis-a-vis protein. I've, I've seen people on both sides of this argument. I appreciate that the keto community He has supported me in this conquest of mine. So regardless of how you feel, I would love to know. There are some people who were disgusted by the idea of eating an egg out of a vending machine. It is refrigerated, by the way. But then there was also someone, maybe more than one person, who said that they definitely got sick from one of those because it was warm. Either way, I want to hear your thoughts. And if you, if your ears perked up, like, like my eyes bulged out of my head once I saw these, if you're like, I'm sorry, where can I get a handful of eggs on the go? It is by the furthest bus depot at at Epcot, there is a set of vending machines and there is one in there. So uh, let me know your thoughts. The machine was out of service, which I mentioned at the end as to not uh, taint your judgment of the situation. But please let me know. I mean, I'm all in on these eggs and I think everybody should be. Sorry, Brooke. Sorry, everyone else who doesn't. The dissenting opinions, but I think it's great. I think it's great. Protein on the go. Hi, Carly. My name is Christina calling from Northern California. And I am moving back to Florida and need to know the top things to do at Disneyland because that's where my friends and I are going for our last hoorah before I move out. So any list, I'll take 5, 10, 15 of the top things that you love to do, rides, must-eat food. If you can narrow it down for us, that would be amazing. Thank you. Love the podcast. Bye. All right, Christina, if we are going to do a bucket list blowout trip to Disneyland Resort, I'm going to give you a mix of what I recommend, which is a focus on stuff that's unique and special and specific to Disneyland because you are moving to Florida. So you're going to be closer to those theme parks. Well, also just letting my favorites guide the list. So not making you stick to a bunch of stuff you don't want to do just because you're at Disneyland. Now, in terms of park to park at Disneyland, I would prioritize Space Mountain, Indiana Jones, Haunted Mansion, Peter Pan, and if you have time, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. That's usually what I try to try to hint when I'm there, and you'll really just be able to soak up all the Disneyland-specific vibes. In terms of food, you gotta get a Dole Whip. Mickey pretzels, which, by the way, they were only available at one cart when the parks reopened, but now I checked the website and it appears they're back at multiple, so you should be covered on the Mickey pretzel front. And, of course, Mickey-shaped beignets! You gotta get some Mickey-shaped beignets. Over at Disney California Adventure, ride-wise, prioritize Radiator Springs Racers, Incredicoaster, Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout, and check out Avengers Campus if you can, because it's new, and even just passing through, you can soak up some of that, some of that sweet Iron Man FaceTime, even though he's wearing a costume. It's fine. You get what I mean. (laughs) As for snacks, listen, if you can get that candy bar from Pim's Test Kitchen, get it. It might be hard. I don't know what the mobile ordering situation is like there right now, because I, as a former annual pass holder... I am not back as often as I used to be because I got to buy them hard tickets, but I would get that if you can. But if not, just get anything from one of the cozy cones in Cars Land. It's so nice to be able to just make a transaction through one of those cones. It really doesn't matter what you get. Ice cream, churro, who cares? Whatever you get, you will be filled with joy. Now, I know people are currently screaming at their phones, at their computers, at their car windshields that I did not mention lobster nachos, but there is a reason. If you are going for one blowout day to Disneyland Resort, I do not recommend that you make a table service dining reservation. If you are going to, I recommend doing it at the very, very end of the day. And depending on park hours, if you do that inside the park, it might kind of just shorten the amount of time that you have to see and do everything. 
Now, some other scattered advice. Uh, I'd say to book a boarding pass for web slingers over Rise of the Resistance, especially if you don't know the next time you're going to be back at Disneyland Resort and will be a Florida local. It's your call, but as a reminder, those drop at 7 a.m. and noon, and you have to move quickly to get them. Seriously, so <laughs> quickly. I always recommend good old Brooke Geiger McDonald. She's just just back-to-back calls this week. Uh, I always recommend her guide on better.net, which has all the tips for how to get a boarding pass. It does not have tips for how to get protein on the go vis-a-vis eggs, but it will tell you how to get a boarding pass for Rise of the Resistance, which is the same process as Web Slingers. I would also recommend mobile ordering food in advance. Literally, like, park your car, and while you're walking into the park, mobile order food for lunchtime, for later in the day, for snack time. You can always push those times forward. You don't get charged until you actually pick up the food. And this way, you'll be set for later on in the day and you won't have to wait a few hours later than when you actually want that special treat. Again, I don't I don't recommend making a table service restaurant reservation, but if you do want to take some time to chill out, think about doing it in downtown Disney at the very, very end of the night after park hours. I'm not sure when you're going, so that depends on your situation. But if you can, I would try to swing a visit to Disney's Grand Californian Hotel or to Trader Sam's at Disneyland Hotel, regardless if it's just to walk by, to get a drink. Trader Sam's is probably going to be a bit of a situation (laughs) once it opens this Friday, July 2nd, because there's, what, 15 months of pent-up demand, and that's maybe one of the biggest cult favorite locations (laughs) at Disneyland Resort. So I wouldn't bank on being able to get in and getting a drink. But regardless of what you do, it'll be nice to say a final goodbye to California at either of those hotels because they're so unique to that resort. I hope that helps. Um, Good luck with the move and have so much fun on your final hurrah at Disneyland. Good morning, campers. This is Ellen in Houston, brand new listener, first time caller. I will be in the Orlando area for work in August and I can swing one day at a park. I was originally going to try and do Rise of the Resistance for the first time, but now I'm completely conflicted after hearing your Velocicoaster episode. Which, rad new ride, should I prioritize? I'll add that I've been to both parks in question before, I enjoyed them both, and barring some new horrible thing, I will be back, so I'm a single-issue voter here. Also, am I morally obligated to try getting to Bakehouse regardless? Love the pod, so I'm not completely sure I understand the phone situation. Thank you, bye! Hi, Ellen! Oh my gosh, I am so thrilled that you're trusting me with this very important decision. Okay, here's the deal. Both of them are fabulous. Under any other circumstance, I would recommend both. But because Velocicoaster is the only one of the two you can kind of sort of guarantee you'll be able to ride, I think you should go Velocicoaster. The deal is, as I mentioned a second ago, Rise of the Resistance requires a boarding group on this coast as well. So if you don't happen to get one at either 7 a.m. or 1 p.m., which, by the way, those are Disney World times. At Disneyland, it's 7 a.m. and noon. So Never the two shall meet or cross or be simple to communicate. But if you don't get one, which can absolutely happen, you won't get on board. And it's not like you're you're choosing a park to go to for the entire day. You are choosing based on one ride. And in that case, I feel like Universal's Islands of Adventure is the one for you. Odds are, too, if you're going to come back, you'll be at Disney World for more than a day. So you'll have more opportunities to try and get on Rise of the Resistance. But with only one day in play and your eyes on the prize... Do Velocicoaster, as you saw me and good old Brooke Geiger McDonald, a real hat trick this week, uh, as you saw, probably saw us online riding that ride together. We were scared and overjoyed and happy and frightened and nervous all at the same time. That attraction is unbelievable. It is truly, I can't wrap my head around it. I can't wait to go back on it. And if your schedule allows for it, please go on Velocicoaster at night for me and let me know how it went. I really wanted to go at night. It didn't line up with the way my trip was. It wasn't open the way it worked with the media press preview. And though I left at night and so I couldn't get to the ride that it wasn't open the one night and then I couldn't get to it the next one because it was at the airport. So I, I can't wait to go on that at night. It seems even more exciting, even more terrifying. Oh my God, that launch. Oh, it's so good. Go do Velocicoaster. Do Velocicoaster. Let me know how it goes. Have so much fun. That's our show! 
thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to Winona Bechdel and Alex Evans of Bob Baker Marionette Theater for coming on and sharing the vast history of one of my most favorite places in the world right here on Very Amusing. You can find out more about Bob Baker Marionette Theater at bobbakermarionettetheater.com. Check out their fabulous web store with so much good stuff that I personally have picked up over the years. I have a really cool keychain that is on my car keys every single day of my life. Find out more about their Zoom puppet shows. Join their Patreon, where I'm also a member, so you're in good company. Check out their outdoor shows this summer. Stay tuned for future dates. And yes, you can even see them perform this summer at Knott's Berry Farm. Yes, in a theme park. It's canon, baby. They'll be playing Friday, Saturday, and Sunday now through September 5th. And all shows are included in the cost of admission incredible. I've been a long-standing supporter of the theater ever since my friend Jamie first took me there a handful of years ago, and it is near and dear to my heart. So please, if the mood strikes, I encourage you to do any of those things, to check them out, and to even donate because it is a nonprofit, and they are wonderful, and I am so in support of everything they do. You can rate, review, and follow or subscribe, they change the wording, I don't know, to Very Amusing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your pods for free. It's all free. Isn't that fun? It's free. We're really, uh, we're floating between a 4.9 and a 5.0 on the ratings chart right now. So any push you can do to get us over the edge to numerical perfection would be incredible and greatly appreciated. <laughs> Thank you, Yo-Yo Nash, Holly12, Bougie, just Bougie? Okay. And Teleclaster, aka Craig Williams of the Diz, who filled out a review and a ranking in front of me while I let him use my portable fan. Listen, you gotta get the job done sometimes. Yes, it was made under duress, but it's okay. I gave him a five-star rating and it's just friends supporting friends. So do like Craig does and uh, give Very Amusing a, a cool little tip of the cap and a 5.0 and a few kind words and we appreciate it so much. A lovely little review really does change a lot, especially being in tip us. I just 5.0 sounds so even. 4.9 is like, oh, I need extra credit. You know what I mean? No, no one else is as difficult in school. Okay, moving on. Give us a call at 747churros or email us at 747churros at gmail.com. Your questions, your thoughts, your observations, your feelings about eggs or what rides to prioritize or literally anything about theme parks. I love getting them and I cannot wait to tackle all of them. We got an unusual influx of calls in the past week, probably because we took one episode off, but we have a lot to get through. So if you didn't hear yours this week, do not worry. I still got them. I got them in the little thing. They're coming. I promise it might take a minute, but we'll get to them. I assure you. Follow me on social media at Carly Wiesel on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. I'm I'm at you can't get rid of me. Can't get you can't get rid of me. Very amusing is edited conscientiously by Jeff Fox. Thanks so much for listening, and see you real soon. Mom, uh, you, Arthur, and Keith were so funny. I stopped everything I was doing, and I sat down and just kicked up my feet and enjoyed it. It was one of the best episodes, really. I can't imagine being in a room with George Lucas because I definitely would have asked for a picture, you know me. Even though I might get myself in a lot of trouble, I would take the chance. I wouldn't be able to stop myself. I would have to have a picture. But I love how you all tell it like it is. It was so, so good. But, okay, as long as you brought this up, I can comment on it. It's okay. So I feel, as far as the ladies' room in Shanghai, after all these years of telling you don't sit down on the toilet seat, I find out today that you sit. And if you had listened to me, you would have been the, you would have been a pro by now. You would have been the best squatter. Just saying. Anyway, the episode was so good. I just loved it. Love you, sweetie. Talk soon. But I have a feeling after my little comment, you're going to call me sooner than later. All right. I'll take my, I'll take the hit. I love you. Bye.